0: or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. That was, that was awesome, you guys. Appreciate that. I love it when Darren gets a little wound up on the drums. I get into it, watching him get into it. Um, hey, um, like I mentioned, we're in a series on the Gospel of Mark. And so if you're visiting with us, maybe you haven't been a part of this what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark in different lengths of sections and so on. But today what's happened is we've arrived at chapter 14. And so um, 14 of the 16 chapters. And and, um, so for for those of you that maybe haven't been a part of it all, what I thought I would do this morning is for about the first like 30 minutes or so, um, I'm just going to review the first 13 chapters and then for the last half of the hour, I'm going to dive in and we're going to tackle chapter 14. <laughs> the looks of horror <laughs> on everybody right there, right then. You know, I spent a lot of time in my office coming up with these plans each week, you guys. And I could tell that was a stinker right there because that did not go over well. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not going to spend an hour. We're going to dive right into chapter 14, and we're not going to cover the whole chapter this morning. We're going to do the first 42 verses, and um, so that's, that's a, a big chunk, and we're going to have to kind of make our way through it fairly quickly. Um, this is a, a section of scripture that is often referred to as the passion of Jesus, or the, the passion of the Christ, and that's kind of weird. I don't know if you've heard that term before, you've run into that um, that, that terminology, the passion of the Christ, and uh, really, like, I mean, it's all to do with his arrest and his trial and then his crucifixion and his death, and, and we're talking about that in terms of passion. Well, it doesn't make sense until maybe you understand that, that the passion that's taken from a Latin word for suffering, and so when we understand that the passion or the suffering of Christ is what we're talking about, well, this now starts to make a lot more sense and in verses 1 and 2, Mark points out why Jesus is going to suffer. There he points to the fact again, over and over, he's been tipping us off to this fact. Jesus has been tipping off his disciples to the fact that the religious authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, have been conspiring to kill Christ, to kill Jesus, because they see him as a threat. And so here we go, verse, chapter 14, we start off again, verse 1 and 2. Mark reminding us that the religious authorities were setting out to kill Jesus. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to do it in secret as much as possible. This was Passover time. There's all kinds of people in Jerusalem, there's a big crowd. And so they want to do this in secret, preferably not during the festival of the Passover, so as to not incite a riot. They want to keep this as low-key as possible. They don't want this to get out of hand. While well, there's so many people around and where this could cause a problem and get them into more trouble with Rome and everything like it. So that's why the section we're going into is called the Passion, the Suffering of Christ, because they're out to get him. And as we start this section today, we see that the action is stepping up a notch. The plotting and the planning of the Pharisees is about to be put into action. It's no longer just on paper. It's going to start playing out in 3D. So before we dive in, let's pray just once more and ask God to come and speak to us. Father, again, right now, Father, Lord. As we come to your word... I pray that for those that don't know you yet, that you would come alive for them today. That they might know and sense you in a way that they have never felt you before, never experienced you before, that they would be convinced today that you are real, that you are alive and that you are at work. And Father, for those of us that do know you, that we would come to know you better. That you would change our hearts and our minds this morning. That we would understand our place before you today. Our responsibility in light of who you are. That you would give us a whole new motivation by your spirit to live according to what you have laid out for us. In order to be the people that you are calling us to be. So that we might be a testimony now, God, to a world that desperately needs to know you as real and to understand the work of your Son in our world and in our lives so that we might come to know you as God and our Savior. And so to that end, Father, this morning I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. All right. Now, in your Bibles, as you're, as you're looking at this section of uh, Scripture, you're going to find that it's divided up into four or five sections, depending. And they come with different headings oftentimes in, in our Bibles now. And I'm going to go through each of these sections, um, but I'm not going to comment on them all. We could spend a day easily and more in each of these sections, um, but I'm just going to point out a, a, a few things that are of significance as we go through them until, until we get to the section that you might find is headed Gethsemane in your Bible. And there we're going to park for a little bit, and we're going to unpack that, that section a little bit more. But before then, we're going to move along. It's going to be a little staccato. It's going to be a little bit clipped, um, but I'll point out a few things. I trust that you'll go home, that you'll read these sections that maybe you already have. That would be awesome, uh, but that you'll if you haven't, go home and that you'll look at them a little bit more in depth and, and see some of the other things that are contained therein because it's, it's just a, a treasure load of things for us to know and understand from God. Let's start with section uh, 3 to 9, verses 3 to 9. And in your Bible, it may be under the heading of something along the lines of, the woman anoints Jesus with perfume. Now. As we come to that section, we see that this lady comes into this party, if you will, or this gathering, probably a better word, of people, and she brings this jar of perfume, a very expensive perfume, and she breaks it and pours it out on Christ. And this garners a very harsh reaction from the disciples, like a strong reaction of condemnation on this woman for what she's done. They don't agree and they don't appreciate what she's, uh, what's just happened and how she's just approached um, Christ and, and dumped, emptied out this jar of perfume on him. And at the very same time, we see a far different reaction from Jesus. It's a, it's a completely different response from him. It provokes a completely different response. So we'll pick it up in verse 6. "'Leave her alone,' said Jesus." Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, Jesus in this circumstance actually praises, affirms this woman in the very same way and almost with the same words that he affirmed the widow just a couple of chapters before as she came and made her offering, her donation of two leptons in the temple. So, in the same way that this widow has come and brought her offering to Jesus, or to the temple, I mean, this woman has now come and brought this offering to to Christ. And he affirms her in the same sense, from which we need to understand once more. Mark underlines it again for us this morning, that God is not looking at the size of our donation. He is looking at our motivation for the donation. He's looking into our hearts. And that's what counts for him. That's what matters for him is the motivation behind the donation. So we need to keep that in mind. In this world that over and over tells us that it is all about the size of the donation. That the significance comes in the amount. What's important is how much you give. And Mark's showing us again that God doesn't see it that way. That he sees it far differently. What's inside is what matters to him. Not how it plays out on the outside. But this morning, we also need to see something else because Mark adds to this a different facet for us today in this section here in chapter 14. We can understand this even a little bit better by this extra, this second example. In the example, in the the account of the widow who brought two leptons, which is to say one sixty-fourth of a common laborer's days wages here we find a woman who has brought a very expensive bottle of perfume that would amount to a year's wages so on the one hand two leptons a pittance from the widow on the other hand an extravagant donation from a woman but the same response from God. The same response from Christ. We need to understand this morning that our significance today, yours and mine, does not come from our station in life. Our ability economically, our ability in terms of our position, our significance rests within ourselves, with God, before God. I don't know about you. Significance is something that I've struggled with in my life. I want to be significant. I want to matter. I want to count. And as I look around in life, and as I try and get a bearing on what that means and how that plays out in order to accomplish it, the world tells me over and over that you've got to be somebody. That you have to have something to give in order to be significant. And this morning as we see these two contrasting offerings by these people, we understand that our significance does not rest there. Our significance is in who we are, who God has designed us to be, and how we then respond to Him. Therein lies our significance. So wherever you are at in life, whatever your lot might be, your position, your power economically or otherwise, sociologically, matters not. Your significance rests in who God has designed you to be and how you then respond to Him. Don't miss that this morning as we hear from Mark, the tale of the woman who brings and offers her, her Perfume and anoints Christ. Verse 8 continues in this section. I just want to draw this quickly to your attention. Jesus says again, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Once more, we need to take note that Jesus is fully aware of the fact that he is about to die. This is not sneaking up on him. This is not something that is going to be an accident. This is not going to be random. Jesus is fully aware. And he's moving in that direction. In and of his own volition. Which we're going to see play out a little bit further coming up. Carrying on. The next section, verses 10 and 11. Jesus goes to the religious authorities. Now... The only reason that I bring this up is that sometimes in our Bibles, it, it, it almost seems contradictory. It almost seems like it's built up to be more than it really is. It says there that somehow Jesus betrays Jesus. Or, sorry, Judas betrays Jesus. I don't know if you've got that in your version or not. And I don't know, it doesn't quite ring true. When, when we look at the term "betrays," it's better understood, I think, to mean that he was handed over. Judas handed over Jesus. And so, that helped me at least to understand, that helps me to to, to understand what Judas did. Now, remember, back in verse 1 and 2, the religious religious authorities have decided that they're going to kill Jesus. That's what they're after. That's their intention. That's their plan. But they're trying to do this at a time that's not going to raise a whole bunch of problems for themselves where people are going to get all agitated and they're, they risk a revolt. So they're trying to do it as best they can in secret, but they don't know what Jesus' activities are, where he's going to be next, what's going to happen. They don't want to take him in public if they can avoid that. So they're looking for a discrete point in time to start and enact this plan. And I think they've got the rest of the plan all in place. As we see that play out, as we see the trial play out coming up in the weeks ahead, next couple of weeks, then I think that that's scripted. Personally, I think that they've got that. They've been taking notes. They know what they're going to charge him with. They know how they're going to try and bring up this evidence. Yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Their problem is is that they don't know when they can get him, and they don't want they don't want to do it at the wrong time. So Judas comes along and says, "I can help you with that. I'll hand him over to you at the most appropriate time when it's quiet." I'll come and get you, and you can come and get him. It solves the last of the religious authorities' problems. When do we implement the plan? Judas fills in that gap. Now, verses 12 to 26, the next section is often referred to and usually referred to in your Bibles as the Last Supper. And we could park here for a long time, Um, but I want to just point out a couple of things quickly. First of all, verse 18 is the first mention now that one of the disciples is implicated in this plan where Jesus is about to die. Up until now, Jesus has been saying that I'm going to go and I'm going to die. The, The religious authorities in Jerusalem are going to take me, I'm going to die. But this is the first time at this meal that Jesus drops the bombshell that one of the disciples is somehow in on this, is implicated in this event that's about to happen. And can you imagine being there? Going, what? Like, I don't even understand yet what you're talking about, that you're going to die. You're supposed to be leading us on to victory here as the Messiah, but now you're going to die. I'm trying to catch that through my head, and, and, and now you're telling me that somehow one of us is implicated in this? So, they've got a lot to process. And Jesus then begins to point them beyond what's about to happen. Don't get bogged down here. Pay attention, because there's much more ahead. Jesus implicates the disciples in the meaning and the purpose of his death. Verse 22, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is, the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now remember again, this is Passover season in Jerusalem. Everything is focused on this Passover event where the children of Israel commemorate God leading them out of Egypt, their bondage and their slavery in Egypt. And Passover meant, what Passover was all about was that back in Egypt, they'd been instructed by Moses and by God to put blood on the doorposts of their home, of a lamb. They had to sacrifice a lamb. And put the blood on the doorposts of their home so that the angel of death would pass over their homes and that their firstborn sons would not be killed. And so, this is the backdrop of what's going on here. They're very aware that Passover was of benefit to them. The death of the lamb at Passover was of a significant benefit to the children of Israel. And they commemorated that every year as God allowed the angel to pass over them and they were spared that punishment. But here now, Jesus comes along. And in the symbol of the broken bread, which meant his body about to be killed, he implicates... The fact that this is going to be, this, his body broken for them, is going to be somehow for their benefit. So they're trying to wrap their heads around this. That he's going to die. That now somehow one of us is going to be implicated in this. But yet so somehow this is going to be for our benefit. And what's more then? Jesus takes the next step as he hands them the bread and the cup and asks them to participate with him. Now, he didn't just break the bread and eat it himself. He didn't just take the cup and drink it himself. But he took the bread and the cup and he handed it to them, implicating them now in the purpose of his death that somehow... That he's gonna participate, that they, the disciples, are gonna participate in this with him going forward, that they were now going to be sort of, if you will, deputized to the purpose that God has, that Christ has in his death. And that going forward, then, that they would have a place and a part to play in this plan. It would somehow be for our benefit. Now this morning, as we've seen, as we've gone through the gospel of Mark, the disciples are not just the disciples themselves, but they are also representative of you and I today. And herein, we need to understand that if we call ourselves followers of Christ, that Jesus was saying that now in my death, there will be a benefit for you. That my death is going to be a benefit for you. And what's more, that if you follow me, then, then you are now implicated in the purpose of my death. That what is making me go to this stage, this step, take this step, the motivation behind it, The reason for it is now yours to carry on beyond us, beyond this event itself, into the future. It's 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 amazing. We can't miss it. Don't miss it this morning. It's not just for the disciples. It's for you and I as well. Now, Jesus also refers here to the blood of the covenant and if you're not familiar with this, this gets all a little bit wacky, doodle, doodle. What, what weird? What's all this blood of the covenant stuff? Now this related to the original covenant ceremony with Moses back at Mount Sinai, and it especially specifically is articulated in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. There it says. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Everything that he had just outlined for them at Mount Sinai. He seals them with this blood. The sprinkling of blood by Moses over the people sealed God's relationship with the Israelites after he had delivered them from Egypt. he sealed them as his people in this covenant with them there and now christ here at this meal with the disciples is indicating that he's initiating a new covenant a new covenant and this becomes then the fulfillment of jeremiah 31 to 30 verses 31 to 34 jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 it says this The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Israel because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And further to that, this then is also reminiscent of Isaiah 53, verse 12, which says, Therefore I will give him a portion. This is again. God talking, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. This is all about Christ. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Church family, we've been watching, we've been noting as we've gone through the Gospel of Acts how Christ has been intentional. How Jesus has been intentional in all of the steps that he's taken as he's entered this public ministry phase of his life. He's given up and left his family. He's out now moving about the region, the land, teaching, preaching, sharing with the people. He's done so specifically. He's done so intentionally. He's done so knowingly. This isn't, hasn't been random. It hasn't been by accident. It hasn't been a surprise to him. He's carrying it out. All according to what he knows and what he's planned. But here, here, we also see that God the Father has a plan. That he's had a plan since the creation of time. Since the origin of the world that he's known what he is doing, that he's entered into these covenants, and at this point in time that he was about to initiate a new covenant through his son, that this is not just random, that this isn't just kind of messed up, mixed up, abstract and unknown, but that this is God's plan and that he is actively carrying it out according to his purposes in his time for specific reasons that will be to our benefit and that as, uh, as for us as followers of his now that we will be implicated in going forward. Don't miss it. Church family, there is a God Sure as we're sitting here. And he is busy working day in and day out in our lives and in our world to accomplish a restored relationship with him with, for each one of us. If we would choose to see him, find him, and respond to him. Verses 27 to 31 is a section entitled, Jesus Predicts Peter's Denial. And it starts off with some words that are actually Christ referencing Zechariah 13 verse 7. It's not random. It's not kind of crazy talk. Jesus is quoting Zechariah 13 verse 7 which says, Awake sword against my shepherd. That's against Jesus. Against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So that's where that comes from. It's again a demonstration that God has a plan, that He's working it out. Now, we focus so much when we come to this section on Peter's denial. But the fact is, is that each one of the disciples is going to deny Jesus. Each one of them. Verse 27 says, you will all fall away. That's from Jesus. He looks at his disciples. Peter's the one that we're paying attention to. Oh, we're thinking of Peter. What's up with you, dude? Don't be so bold. Don't be so rash. But don't miss. Jesus says to each of the disciples, you will all fall away. And once again, we need to understand that the disciples are representative of you and I again here too. That we too are going to fall away. They're representative of each of us. That we don't have it within us. To walk this road. That we too are going to flee. Like we will find out. Next week as we go into the, the rest of this chapter. And into chapter 15. Next week we will we'll expand on Peter's denial a little bit. So don't miss that. Come back for that. This brings us though. To verses 32 to 42. Which is Gethsemane. And this morning, like I mentioned, I want to park here for just a little while longer and explore this a little bit more in depth. We're going to read this section, these 10 verses. So if you join with me. Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watching? For one hour, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. Then he came back. Sorry, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I think that as we come to this passion of Christ, that this section is perhaps one of the more disregarded parts of the account. overshadowed maybe by virtue of all the action parts that are going on around it that we tend to be gra- to gravitate towards or overlooked possibly maybe on account of our low esteem of prayer but this morning if that's the case for you and i maybe maybe we can change that a little bit. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, James Edwards says this. The cross is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand. A matter of the will before it is an empirical reality. Let me me read that for you again. The cross is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand. A matter of the will before it is an empirical reality. That's an astute observation. This is to say that the cross was not an accident. The cross was not a surprise. And the cross is not an imposition of the Father's will on the Son. The cross is first a choice by Christ. The cross is first a choice by Jesus. The reality of the cross, the reality of Christ's death and then His subsequent resurrection comes about as a result of where Christ's heart is at and then by virtue of Him choosing To conform his will to that of the Father. The cross comes about, first of all, as a result of where Christ's heart is at. And secondly, then, because of his decision, his choice, to submit his will to that of the Father. Now, for followers of Jesus Christ today, for those of us, you and I, that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, this has to have a bearing on how we live our lives. It must. At the the beginning of this series I mentioned, that the Gospel of Mark speaks to us about discipleship. It speaks to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Mark gives us this picture of what being a disciple is all about. And we've seen that throughout this book. But here in Gethsemane, we find the core of the matter. We find the very center of the deal our hearts, and our wills. Now, I appreciate that in life, for you and I today, that there are things in this life that we are implicated in, that we are subject to, that we have no control over, in and of ourselves. However, the majority of your life and mine plays out according to our hearts and our wills. What we hold a value in our hearts and what we will to do in our lives. And for that matter, even in the areas of life that we are subject to, where we are implicated in, that we have no control over, we do actually then exercise our own response to those issues. According to where our hearts are at and our wills are at. Where our hearts are at and how we exercise our wills is foundational today to our discipleship, to where we are at as followers of Jesus Christ. So, the first question that we have to ask this morning is where are our hearts? Where are our hearts today? Now, guys. As I start to talk about hearts, don't think that I'm going all mamby-pamby and romantic. Don't think that this is all now just for the girls. Oh, we're talking about heart stuff. That's, that's for the girls. But no, don't, don't go there. Boys, this is for us, every bit is as, much as it is for the ladies. The question that I'm asking is, where is your devotion today, guys? Ladies, what are you devoted to today? What are your priorities day by day? Where is your focus? What are your intentions? Day in and day out. I'm here to tell you that if our hearts are anywhere else other than on God, we have a problem. You and I have a problem. To the extent that our hearts drift away from God, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Lloyd Minster, we have a problem. FBC, we have a problem. If you are focused on pleasure this morning, you've got a problem. If we are focused on comfort this morning, we've got a problem. And you say to me, well, Doug, I'm not so juvenile as to be focused on pleasure. I'm not so childlike and immature to be focused on comfort. I have focuses. I'm focused on my family. That's a good thing. I'd say you have a problem. You say, I'm, I, I'm focused on my wife. I'm focused on my husband. I'm focused on my spouse. I would say, you have a problem. You know, we, we are so adept at rationalizing our way through, at spiritualizing our focuses and our, obje- our, our objects, our priorities, in order to make it sound proper, in order to somehow... Make it acceptable to God. That I would be able to focus on something other than Him and have Him somehow endorse that. And I'm here to say, you've got a problem. I've got a problem every time I do that. And don't hear me say this morning. That if we do focus on God, that we're not going to have problems. I'm not saying that either when we focus on God, when our hearts are where they're supposed to be, get ready. We're going to have problems. And Christ is the case in point this morning. Church family, our salvation was bought at a cost. It began when Christ, not not robbery, and left heaven to come down to this cesspool called sinful earth on a mission to save us. We've seen it play out. The cost of our salvation is played out week by week as we've gone through this gospel. As Jesus is rejected by his family, as he's rejected by his community, as he's rejected by people. As they thumb their noses at him, as they disrespect him, as they scoff, As the religious leaders are now planning and plotting to kill him. And now we see the next installment of the cost of our salvation as Christ has to relinquish his will. His own will to that of the Father. Knowing and understanding what that's going to entail. What that means. That he is going to become the antithesis of God that he's going to become the exact opposite of God and being made sin for us, that that is going to result in his utter separation from God the Father, the severing of their relationship. And what's more, that he will be made the object of God's wrath on our account, yours and mine, for our sin, not his. There's a price to pay for our Salvation. Christ paid it. But now he's pointed to the fact, as we've seen earlier in the account, in the gospel, where he calls us now to pick up our cross and follow him, which is to say that we now have a cost to pay ourselves. We're going to have trouble. Absolutely we're going to have trouble. But this is the trouble that we want to have, following Christ and having our hearts on him. Not the trouble that comes from Being distracted and detoured away from Him by the world around us. Which brings us then to the second question that we have to ask ourselves and answer this morning. Are we prepared to bring our wills in line with that of God the Father? Are we ready to count the cost today? Now, like, like the disciples, like Peter. Oh Lord, no, no, not me. I'm not gonna deny you. That's not gonna happen. I'm in for the long haul. I'm here, I'm in. When the going gets tough, you can count on me. And we're like that, aren't we? That's us. All of the disciples then went and said, Yeah, no, not me. You don't have to worry about me, Jesus. But when the going gets tough, isn't it so often that we scatter? God says no to abortion. And we say, well, wait a second, that's inconvenient. God says no to all this sexual perversion and debauchery. Premarital sex, and we say to ourselves, "Oh, you can't be serious, really? This is all good." God says, "I hate divorce," and we say to ourselves, "Man, I'm just not feeling it anymore." And our will becomes not to follow God, not to trust him to be able to get me through, not just even get me through, but to help me thrive in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the junk. To solve these problems in my life. No, 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 no. My will becomes to follow my own self-interest And we scatter, we scatter. The question this morning for us is are we willing to bring our lives and our wills in line with God the Father today and to count that cost as one of His followers, as His disciples? Now the thing is, I'm more late, I apologize. Really quickly. God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there, knowing that we're going to scatter, knowing that we're going to fail. Go back with me to verse 38. Jesus comes along and he says to the disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation." The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God points us to how to endure, how to succeed in the midst of this, against our own self-interest. He says, watch and pray. Just as he's outlined in chapter 13, be watchful, be attentive, watch and pray. He now calls us as individuals to do it ourselves, individually every day. Watch and pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which is to say, our higher nature, that part that wants to follow God. And we do, don't we? We want to follow God. That higher nature, the spirit, is willing. But our flesh, our fallen nature, our sinful, carnal man, what makes us... The humans that we are. The sin that's working in our lives. That's the problem. That's where we're weak. And we need to then watch and pray. So that we're not overcome. That our higher natures are not overcome. By our sinfulness. Our base nature. Our fallenness. Which is to say then that day by day we need to get up and that we need to be paying attention, alert to the temptations of this world that are out to seek to destroy us, to detour us, to distract us from being followers of Christ, to having our hearts deviated away from Him and our wills brought in line with our self-interest, rather than being attentive and watchful and careful to keep ourselves in line with God. Watch and pray. And as we do, then by the Spirit, God can help us to avoid temptation so that we would not fall, that we would be able to follow Him and not flee like rats before Him. And we're going to continue on. We're going to carry this forward next week a little bit as we finish out. Chapter 14 as we break into chapter 15. But for now, would you pray with me? Father, this afternoon, this morning, God, again I pray, forgive us for how often that we allow our hearts to deviate from you and we then bring our wills in line with, not you, but our own best interests as we define it. God, I pray that by Your Spirit that You would come now and that You would work in our hearts and our minds. That You would convict us. That You would point us to where we are right now succumbing to temptation, deviating from who You are and what You are about. All to our detriment. And that You would help us to course correct. God, that You would make us into Your people. That we would not play with our faith. That this would not be a joke to us that this would not be a peripheral to us, that that, that our faith with you, our relationship with you would be central to our lives and our hearts and our wills. And I pray this now all for Jesus' sake, in light of what he's given up for us, in response to his example to us, for his sake alone, amen.